you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Genesis chapter 16 this morning. Genesis chapter 16. What happens when shortcuts turn into spiritual dead ends? What happens when shortcuts in life turn to spiritual dead ends in your life? After Danielle and I uh, finished at Beeson Divinity School, we moved to New Orleans. I had a summer where I was taking German in the summer. She got a teaching position that would begin in the fall. So there was a unique period in our life where we had a summer living in New Orleans with the responsibility of school, but that was it. So a lot of the afternoons and evenings, we just explored New Orleans. And I remember Early on in our time living in New Orleans, we were eating in the French Quarter, and I had overheard in the seminar that I was taking that summer, I'd overheard some guys talk about a shortcut from the seminary back to, or from from the French Quarter back to the seminary. And so I overheard it, we were eating there, living there two or three weeks, and so 9.30, 10 o'clock, we finish up in the French Quarter. We're making our way back to, as you can imagine, a luxurious one-bedroom apartment on the seminary campus there. And so we're making our way back, and instead of going the interstate the way we had come, the way I knew, I said, I think I know a shortcut. Why are you laughing? Why, why, what's... <laughs> What's funny? Did y'all tell them to laugh right there? So, okay, like, so if you guys are driving and your dad or your mom says, I think I know a shortcut, it usually doesn't end well. It doesn't. And, and so for us, there was a 10-mile drive back home. And so uh, 30 minutes into that 10-minute drive, uh, I begin to admit what Danielle knew 27 minutes Previous to that moment, that I had no idea where I was going. And we ended up at a real dead end. I love New Orleans, and maybe you've spent some time in New Orleans, but, but you, can, you can end up in some, some sure enough dead end places in New Orleans. And, and where we were, we pulled up on the shortcut home to this loading dock, and there was this huge ship that a drug cartel was loading. I mean, it was just, it was, we had driven into a Jackie Chan movie or something. And I just leaned over to Danielle. We'd been married for four years. And I said, it's been a wonderful four years of life, but this is, this is where it ends right here. And, and, and so we, we made it out of there and, and uh, didn't take the shortcuts Often, but it, but it happens in life. It happens in your life. It happens in my life. We we try to take shortcuts, and they end up physically in dead end places. And that happens not only with your navigation, but it happens spiritually in your life. That in the Bible there are times where men and women of faith take shortcuts, and those shortcuts lead to spiritual dead ends. And this is one of those stories. You're going to find it in Genesis chapter 16, starting in verses 1 through 6. I remind you of what's come before, the terrain that we've traveled on. The previous chapter was the chapter in which Abram is reassured by God through a 
a, a reconstituting of the covenant that was made in Genesis chapter 12, I am going to be faithful. I'm going to be faithful to fulfill my promises of land and lineage. The sacrifices are cut in half. God represented in, in a fire pot is going through the sacrifices, uh, symbolically saying to Abram, if this does not come to fruition, may the curse be upon me. So, so God, in the most visual way, is saying, I am going to be faithful to keep my promise. This is a spiritual high point. This is a spiritual mountaintop. But spiritual high points do not make us immune as followers of God from veering off his path. It didn't then, and it doesn't now. Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarah dealt harshly with her as she fled from her. Boy, there, there is an emotional weight to this situation. I mean, th- th- this is speaking, this is one of the things I love about just preaching God's word. It just intersects the real and raw places of life. Jealousy, doubt, frustration, betrayal, it's all there. Shortcuts that turn into dead ends, it's all there. Now, in verse 3 of chapter 16, there's a contextual clue that really brings to light some of the, the rawness of this passage. Barrenness, infertility, is a weight emotionally, physically, that, that maybe some of you in this very room have traveled. And years turned into years, into years, into years. For whatever reason, God does not allow what maybe is prevalent around you to become your reality. And, and that hangs heavy. It hangs heavy on, on a couple that has had to travel that road and you go home for Thanksgiving, you go home for Christmas and there's always this well-meaning uncle that's always prodding you and, and joking, oh, when, when are you going to have children? And, and, and you laugh it off, but inside of you there's just that weight. And, and for Sarai, verse 3 tells us that she had 10 years of that. Not only 10 years of infertility, she had 10 years after Abram came home and said, guess what, honey, we're moving 
And guess what? God told me you're going to have a baby. Well, she's already had decades of longing for that. She has the promise given to her by God. Those weeks turns into months. Those months turn into years. And those years turn into a decade. And there's a decade of thinking to herself, what did I do wrong? See, there, there's a weight that is far from us in this passage, and that is that the, the sole responsibility oftentimes in the ancient Eastern world fell upon the woman in this situation, so much so that it would have been a grounds of divorce in many ancient Near Eastern cultures, what they're experiencing here. So you can begin to imagine why Sarah said, we've got to find a shortcut. We've got to fix this problem. And so she does, and it's surprising to us the solution that she comes up with as a shortcut, but in the, the world in which they lived, this would have been something that was very prevalent. You have Assyrian marriage contracts that would have been in the historical milieu and culture of this time that we're reading in Genesis that had this provision. That if a couple are not able to have a child together, then the husband would be granted the servant. It's there. In the Hammurabi law codes, it's there. So it was familiar in the surrounding culture. But just because something is familiar in the surrounding culture doesn't mean that it is a faithful way for us to follow God on the path that he would call us to. Now, we don't have all the details in this passage, but, but the plan, the shortcut, is embraced, and Hagar becomes pregnant. And isn't it ironic here, as we're looking at this passage, how Abram responds and how Hagar responds. When you go off the beaten path, there are all kinds of ripples and repercussions. So we shouldn't be surprised that Sarah, who really brings this solution, which we know to be a shortcut, to her husband that she is filled with rage and filled with jealousy and filled with insecurity. I mean, we, we don't have to have a Ph.D. in psychology to understand the psychological effects of jealousy and, and regret that permeate the words on the page of God's Word. At the same time, we see Hagar, for the first time in her life, she is an Egyptian servant, She's always been looked down upon. She's never been known. And now she is pregnant and she is known. Her wants, her desires, she has noticed that the late night cravings that she has. Abram is, I mean, he goes down to the convenience store and buys her pickles and buys her ice cream. I mean, all of those kinds of things we, we, we see, of course, we don't see that in the passage there. This is an exaggeration. But you see, you see the, the way that Hagar begins to, to feel, I am someone now. And as she grows, the rage of Sarai grows simultaneously. And so Sarai comes to her husband and says, we've we got to do something about this. May, may God judge you because of what has occurred here. And Abram backs away. In this passive way, he says, she's your servant, do to her as you please. And boy, did she. She, she makes this pregnant Egyptian servant, her life becomes a living, walking nightmare. And Hagar runs away in disgrace, in disgust. She's been abused. And we might want to pause and just say, 
this sordid affair? What is there that we can learn from this crooked shortcut that, that leads to so many spiritual dead ends? We've got Sarai at a dead end. We've got Abram at a dead end. We've got Hagar at a dead end. Can, can anyone make their way out of this? What do we learn? What well, might very well be that we need to pause and say, have you ever turned to the world instead of turning to the Lord? I mean, this is ultimately why they're in this position. They turn to the world for a solution, and ultimately that leads to this dead end. You know, in our culture, there's a lack of what holds us together. In the marketplace, even in the church world, there are all kinds of people that have, as you know, this competency in their field, They have calling and passion for their field. But what brings about this nightmare of circumstances is when there is a lack of character in that individual. Henry Cloud, in a a wonderful book that I'm reading through right now called Integrity, talks about how it is so prevalent in our culture to to maximize uh, competency, to, to value calling to the exclusion oftentimes of the very thing that gives us longevity in what God has called us to as husbands, as wives, as singles, as employees or employers, and that is character. And we look around in our culture, and there is such a lack of character, which can oftentimes be a permission mission for us to then model that in the little things of our life. We begin to lack integrity at at home, or we begin to lack integrity at the workplace, we begin to lack integrity in these little things that ultimately leads to a character flaw that can undo the very substance of who we are and what we value the most. But so often we say to ourselves, we have permission because everybody else around us in the workplace lives in such a way and they seem to always succeed. It is a shortcut that will always lead to your spiritual, relational dead end. I promise you it will. Maybe you're a teenager here. I mean, gosh, y'all did such a great job. Leading us. I'm always amazed at your leadership and the way that we got seventh graders and eighth graders. We got our chapel choir with us. Brent, John, thank you all for your leadership. Going to Montgomery today, going to Montgomery and going to lead and going to represent, going to glorify God. And we're excited about that. Know that these people here, your parents and your grandparents and people that aren't related to you, they're so proud of you. But we understand that you guys are facing temptations and you guys are facing things that really so many people here can't, can't even begin to relate to. And one of the things about it, it is that it's so, it's so difficult as you guys are, are trying to follow Christ in your schools, you're, being, you're following Christ, that, that that can be a lonely place. That can be a place where you say, you know, no one's going down this road. And you can begin to think to yourself, why do I need to choose integrity? Why do I need to choose purity? Why do I need to choose the way of Christ when everybody else seems to be going in a different direction? And that is going to be the temptation. That's going to be the temptation to look to the world, to look to everyone else that's around you and to say, you know something, they're going in that direction. Maybe it's okay for me to go in that direction. You turn to the world instead of turning to the Lord. And that's one of the things that's so amazing about what you have with those people that are sitting next to you. You have friends in chapel choir and middle school choir, and you have friends in the Dawson student ministry that are choosing the way of the Lord and not choosing the way of the world. 
And you need that. You need that kind of support because around you isn't going to feed that. So praise God for what you have in this. You're seeing the back of my head. Did, did I part my hair? Is that what it is right there that you're seeing right there? And so when we come to this time, I think it's important for us to say, when and how do we choose the world instead of choosing the Lord. Let's pick up the story because it continues in verse 7 here. Because oftentimes we're tempted to believe opinion polls. We're tempted to believe that culture is defines what is right and what is wrong in our world. And I think it's important for us just to be reminded of in this passage here that positions of God are never discovered in just looking at what is prevalent in our culture. God's will is never decided by an opinion poll. God's word isn't discovered by gathering a focus group to decide what we believe about this or that position. It isn't what saith you, but it is what has the Lord said in light of what we face in our culture. Well, Hagar's pregnant. There's nothing in this situation that seems good. There's just raw emotion in this passage. Then we turn to verse 7 and we pick up the rest of the story. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, what? Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you're pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Berlehoroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. She makes her way to a spring. From the book of Numbers, we can estimate this could potentially be 70 to 80 miles away from where she was, a, a place of security. It wasn't a place where she felt emotionally safe. It was a place where she felt abused, but she has traded that place of Abram's household for wilderness, desertion, isolation, 70 to 80 miles away, and notice that the angel of the Lord comes to her. The passage tells us in verse 7 that the angel of the Lord found her. Notice what the passage doesn't tell us, that Hagar cries out, help, help me, come now, help me in my need. None of that. We have no description of Hagar calling upon the name of the Lord. Rather, we have God taking the initiative in this angel of the Lord to seek her out in her despair. It's a reminder of the words of Malcolm Muggeridge. He was a British journalist from decades ago who was an atheist who ultimately, the grace of God, captured him in his disbelief. And he called that experience that, that God was the great hound of heaven that came after him, not because Muggeridge nor us nor Hagar seek after him and he meets us halfway, 
In the midst of her doubt, he comes. In the midst of her despair, he comes. In the midst of loneliness and isolation, God meets her in her isolation and despair. And it is a reminder to you and to me. Now, more than a reminder of how we're met by the grace of God, we discover that there is a word, there's a threefold instruction here. The first is, go back. It's probably not what she wanted to hear. Go back, submit to Sarai. Go back to that household. Go back to where you were. Submit to her. There's a promise and there's a prophecy in this passage. The promise is, much like Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to make your offspring, who is going to be named Ishmael, I'm going to bless your offspring. But there's a prophecy in verses 11 through 12. And that prophecy is that Ishmael and his descendants are going to be at war with the people of God. Notice in verse 13. Notice, you can circle it, you can asterisk. Notice in verse 13 how the angel of the Lord takes on, in Hagar's response, something that we didn't see at first glance. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her and said what? You are a God of seeing. In this passage, what's going to be true in other Old Testament passages is that the angel of the Lord, when is responded to by the person, is responded to as if the angel is the Lord himself. Scholars have looked through these Old Testament manifestations like this and called it a theophany, an appearance, a manifestation of God in flesh, an angelic presence here. It's not going to be the last time in two chapters we're going to see three servants, one of which Abram addresses as the Lord himself. So what is this passage reminding us of? It is reminding us of this remarkable, remarkable truth. Here is this Egyptian slave who has always been someone else's property. She's been abused. She has no voice in her life. And in this moment, she has been heard in her anguish and her abuse. In the midst of utter despair, God himself sees her, hears her, promises to her, I have a plan for you, even when it seems as if all is hopeless. It's a wonderful truth for you to be reminded of and for me to be reminded of is that God sees you. He he sees you even when you're in the wilderness of life's experiences. A couple weeks ago, I was on the sidelines of one of my youngest son's flag football practices, and he went out for a pass, caught the pass, and then got his flag pulled and was running back to the huddle. And he goes, Dad, 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 did you see me? Did you see me? And it made me reflect upon how often I've heard that. Did you see me? Did you see me do this? Did you see me do that? It's a way that it's just sort of innate in children. It's innate in you to desire to be seen, to be valued by your mom and your dad and those that care for you and love you. Did you see that? Here's Hagar in the midst of loneliness, in the midst of our isolation, saying, I have been seen by God. You know, no matter how accomplished you are, no matter how well-adjusted you are, no matter how many rungs on the corporate ladder that you've climbed, there is in every one of us in this room a little girl or a little boy who is crying out, did you see me? Do you notice? 
And I'm here to tell you from Genesis chapter 16, Hagar in the midst of this utterly emotionally fraught story where she's had no voice is seen by God. And maybe you're here today and your circumstances are not the circumstances of Hagar, so specific, but, but you know what it's like to feel isolated, even when things are going well. You know what it's like to feel as if you're in the wilderness, and even when you're talking to people that, that are close to you and love you, if you're going to be honest, you just feel, they just don't understand. I, I can't seem to let them into this thing and where I am. And, and you can come to a place where you feel as if you're in the wilderness of isolation, where you feel that you're in the wilderness of loneliness. You feel that you are not heard. And I am here to tell you and to remind you that it's in those wilderness experiences that the angel of the Lord, God himself, meets us in our despair. He meets us in our anguish. He meets us in our need. And he sees you and he hears you. 